Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand? Let's thank our brothers and sisters for leading us in that song. And you can be seated. Um, and again, I uh, just filled, uh, really, with a, a fresh sense of gratitude of being able to be together uh, on this new season and new quad. And um, there... can see my little note sheet here. We had a payway last night, and I got some sauce on it, so that's why it's having a hard time opening up. So um, not like you needed to know that, but I thought I'd share it. Um, no, I really am. I'm really grateful uh, to be together. Really grateful that we've been able to have this season an opportunity to travel through the Sermon on the Mount. This is really the kind of the Kingdom 101 text and, and talking about what does it mean to live as kingdom citizens uh, really exercising our dual citizenship. In other words, that we're citizens of heaven, but we're also residents here on earth. And so how do we live in the way and the pattern that Jesus taught us of his kingdom coming, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven? And so I've had a commitment, just a personal commitment, that anytime that I get a chance to share, I just want to walk us through the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, if you haven't already, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read in a few moments, verses 21 through 26. But just to catch us up a little bit uh, in the context of where we've been, uh, so far we've traveled through the Beatitudes. So these eight type of kingdom qualities, not giving us a list of things to do, but the type of people to become. And that is only possible through a renewing work of the Spirit of being born again. Jesus said elsewhere in John 3, unless you've been born again, you cannot enter. You cannot see the kingdom of God. So this isn't something that we achieve. It's something that we receive. It's a posture that we take before Jesus as our king of the kingdom. And if we live in these eight qualities, or really that can kind of categorize them in, in that idea of humility, of justice, and peace, Jesus says you're going to be salty and you're going to be light. In other words, that you are going to be working against the decay as salt. You're on the defensive. You enter into where there's decay and depression, and you slow that process down in the world. But then as light, we move offensively, that we push back the works of darkness. I love the way 1 John 3 put it, that the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of darkness, that we enter in as light. And then Jesus, we looked at right before us, we hit spring break, the section and the teaching of talking about how Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In other words, we're, he's talking about an inside-out type of righteousness, that we don't treat the law, we don't treat the word as obsolete. And because Jesus came to fulfill it, so often we can treat it more like he abolished it. In other words, he gave us less to do. But no, Jesus was actually taking it deeper than just mere behavior. And so Jesus now, uh, he, he enters, he says that you, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever uh, does, does them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this outrageous statement to this group of just common folk up there in northern Galilee saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what he's talking about is a type of righteousness, an inside-out righteous, righteousness, a Christian righteousness, not a pharisaical righteousness. It's a type, it's a, it's a different, it has to surpass it in degree, um, and not in, not in mere behavior. Not in the other words, there's 613 laws, and as long as I you know, obey 595 and the Pharisees obey 575, then I'm making then, then it into the kingdom. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an inside-out righteousness, and Jesus 
now begins this next section to offer the first of six corrective applications of what Jesus fulfilling the law looks like and how you and I as believers are empowered to live it out. So again, remember Jesus didn't come. He didn't come to destroy uh, the, the, the law, but to take it deeper, to deepen its demands. And actually, the demands of grace are higher and deeper than the, than the demands of the law. So being under grace, not under the law, because we're under the new covenant, actually means that we actually have more impossible things to do. But the good news is this. Grace always empowers what it commands. So if God commands it, he gives and provides the grace for us to actually experience it. And I quoted this, uh, this pastor last time. There's a pastor that pastors in New York um, in the Brooklyn area. called uh, His name is Rich uh, Velotis. And he says this, The Sermon on the Mount was not given to show our inability to live it, and therefore we trust God. It was given so that we could trust God and live it out. There's a difference. And Jesus gets into this difference. And the first corrective application of what the kingdom righteousness looks like has to do with the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Which, what's, what's the sixth commandment? You guys know this. Anyone, anyone want to shout it out? A little Bible quiz trivia. What's the sixth commandment? Okay, you shall not murder. Okay, you shall not murder. It's the prohibition of murder. But what we're going to see is that Jesus takes it deeper and shows that murder is really the fruit of our deeper root issue, which is anger. To which I want to ask us this key question, and we will consider it now and we'll return to it in prayer at the end of our time together. Ask yourself this question, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Or more specifically, what are you angry about right now? How have you experienced anger in recent weeks, in recent days? Pay attention to that. and Just consider that question as we move forward. So, if you're already there, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus says this. Here is the word of God. Do not think, um, nope, that's the next section, sorry. You have heard that it was said. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Now, maybe different to what's maybe come and perceived what Jesus is doing here, Jesus isn't contrasting what the law says. In other words, he's not pitting himself up against the law. In other words, he's not putting himself alongside, even though he's saying that I'm someone who's greater, he's putting himself alongside of Moses as someone who's more authoritatively interpreting the law than Moses did as the giver of the law. Jesus isn't contrasting what the law says, but instead is standing up against a wrong interpretation that was pervasive in his current context. You see, let me sum up what was happening here. The Pharisees essentially sought to decrease the law's restrictions 
and increase the law's permissions. So in other words, when he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder for those who murder will be liable to judgment. So in other words, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had decreased, in other words, that prohibition of saying that really all this meant was that uh, if you... Uh, if, if you were to murder somebody, which that, that, that is bloodshed motivated by ill or selfish intent, then you're going to be liable to counsel. You're, there's going to be a sentence. And, and without even factoring in all of the different nuances and all of the different pieces of that and, it, and what's happening at the heart level. In other words, the Pharisees were seeking to address the behavior, the fruit, but Jesus begins to reverse this perversion. And so this idea by addressing the root issue. So this idea of murder, here's, here's the thing. There's several nuances that we see in the Old Testament law that we can't delve into. We don't have time to delve into this morning. But there's a lot of different nuances of what this commandment entails. And in the same way that we have several nuances when someone is tried for murder and today in the court of law for murder. In other words, we have first, second, third degree. Uh, we have all these different, uh, different charges. And as I'm sure that you are aware, while we were away on spring break, a long-awaited and contested trial began over the death and murder of George Floyd. And really the reality that the eyes of our nation are on Minnesota in these days to see what's going to happen if justice will prevail. But alongside of that, unless you've been living in a hole for the last 10 months, it's clear to see that our society has certainly erupted into a new season of outrage where anger abounds. But here's the thing. Here's an important nuance. When it comes to anger, not all anger is sinful. Um, the Bible speaks generally about anger as it relates to God as good or a just attribute, often referring to it as righteous indignation. Conversely, while it's possible for humans to experience genuinely, authentically, a type of godly anger, more often than not, the Bible speaks of human anger in negative terms due to the propensity it has to leading us to sin. And I'll say more on this in a few moments, but essentially this, there's uh, um, a Christian lawyer and author by the name of David French who distinguishes between earned anger and manufactured anger that we see in our society. Earned anger is based on the truth. Something that was unlawful, something that was unjust, something that was against the law, something that was against God, the grain of the kingdom, happened. Someone was hurt, someone was maligned, someone was oppressed, um, and, and it's right to get angry. It's right to get angry about that. It's based on truth. But as you know, sometimes while that's true and we can have anger that's inside of that's based upon truth, often we see in a lot in our culture, and unfortunately we see a lot in the body of Christ, this type of manufactured anger, which is manufactured anger, is based upon lies. It's based upon fake news. It's based upon our misperceptions and prejudices and stereotypes of the other. And if we're not careful, we can get something and get into our mind. And even though we might be legitimately angry about something, a wrongdoing that's been done to us or around us or to someone that we love and know and care about, if it was done by a certain person, a certain group, in a certain way, we can begin to manufacture. We enter into this cycle that is destructive and it leads us into sin. But see, what I love about Jesus here is he... He's calling this out, but now he provides this kingdom corrective and really a true explanation of the law. He says this, notice the contrast here between, in verses 22, between you have heard that it was said 
to those of old. Now Jesus says, he steps in, but I say, but I say to you. Jesus now addresses here not murder, but anger. Jesus takes it deeper. And notice now he gives this progression of offense and consequence. So first he says, but I tell you, but I say to you, anyone who is angry at his brother, with his, with his uh, brother or sister, is liable to judgment. And liable to judgment, the same word that's used in verse 21, but it's clear here what can be inferred in the context is in the same way that someone would be liable to murder, liable to judgment for murder in a human court or a human context, um, human judgment, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother or sister, that you might be liable to God's judgment, to divine judgment. Now, a lot could be said here. What, what's anger? Just a brief definition. It's a strong emotional reaction of displeasure incited by a perceived or real wrongdoing, often leading to plans for revenge or punishment. This is a a real emotion, and it's strong. And we need to pay attention to it in our lives, is what Jesus is saying here. But he he keeps taking it deeper. And then he says, whoever insults his brother or sister is liable to the council. In other words, here, what this is talking about is a contempt towards uh, one's head or intellect. It's a way of basically calling somebody a moron, an idiot, an empty head. <laughs> the insulting word here in the Greek is called is raka, which is a term of contempt that's derived from clearing spit from someone's mouth. It's saying, I'm just going to completely dismiss you. As I just spit right there. I didn't try to do that. But I'm going to completely dismiss you. In, in, in other words, it's this, this term of contempt that basically seeks to diminish another's inherent value and treat them, begin to treat them as subhuman. So he goes on to say, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the contempt towards someone's heart or character. And often, I think, don't we see this sometimes when you see like general sides, you pick it you know, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. You have to think of all the different polarities that we have in our, in, in, our, in our society right now, in our culture. So often when someone does something outrageous on the other side, we treat it as emblematic of who they are. In other words, well, that's just who they are. They're just being who they are. But when someone does something outrageous on our side, we treat it as an exception. Well, that's not who we really are. And, and, and we see this, this, this idea of contempt is brewing and has been cultivated in our culture, and even in the context of the body of Christ. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, titled, What If Jesus Was Serious? Subtitle, A Visual Guide to the Teachings of Jesus We Love to Ignore. Author Sky Jathani writes, Cultivating anger toward a person is dangerous, but having, con- having uh, um, contempt for someone is even worse. Its goal is ignoring the person altogether. And he goes on to quote another Christian author by the name of Dallas Willard who wrote the following in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, quote, In anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you are hurt or not. Or, at least so I say, you are not worthy of consideration one way or the other. We can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or to see them further degraded, end quote. So let me just put this into contemporary terms for us. Having contempt towards someone dehumanizes someone to the point where we cancel them from our lives. Enter this whole cancel culture conversation. It's not a new thing, actually. Church actually exercised it ages ago. It was called excommunication. 
this idea of someone being canceled. In other words, completely dismissed. You're, you don't matter. You, you're out. We're in. And you, you are no longer uh, a part of God's kingdom. And here's the thing. There's no such thing as cancel culture in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom doesn't cancel people, but lovingly confronts them with grace and truth. So what's Jesus saying here? I believe that it might be so that you and I, and I likely will believe that won't be the case here in this room, will never be guilty of physically murdering someone and stand before a human court of law. But how many of us are guilty of having anger and contempt for another person and we stand guilty before a holy God? So you might be saying, Justin, so are you saying that actually physically murdering somebody and having an unbridled anger and a contempt towards somebody in my heart is just as serious? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus did. Jesus is saying this unchecked anger is a serious root issue that needs to be dealt with if you and I are going to function holistically in the kingdom of God. And this, now Jesus gives the application. He gives this application of the law. As citizens, in verses 23 and 25, as citizens of God's kingdom, Christians are to be intentionally committed to radical reconciliation. Jesus here gives us two examples of what this looks like. The the pictures are different, but one is taken essentially from the church or a religious context of gathering. In in, in the day of of Jesus would be the synagogue. We can just, let's just uh, impose this now or apply this to our day. It would be taken from the context of a church or a gathering of Christians. And the other from the law of court. One concerns a brother in verse 23, and the other concerns an enemy in verse 25. But in both cases, the basic situation is the same. Somebody has a grievance against us. And the basic lesson is the same. The necessity of immediate, urgent action. In the very act of worship, if we remember the grievance, we are to break off our worship, stop singing, and just leave and go and put it right. And then come back. Or in the very act of going to court, on our way there, we are to settle our debt. Now, so much more could be said on this, but could you imagine for a few moments what this would be like if we actually applied this? We are to pursue reconciliation with others in the same way Jesus has pursued us. If you and I are gospel people, we will recognize that if we have been reconciled to God by the blood shed of Jesus on the cross, then we must be reconciled to God and be reconciled to our brother or sister. Maybe, and I've thought about this, maybe the reason why some of us, maybe this is sitting in the room, have such a hard time connecting with God in a place like this, or maybe why God feels so distant to you, or you have a hard time focusing in his presence, might be because you know somebody has something against you. And there is an unreconciled relationship in your life. And God is saying, go make that right. If you really love me, as a way of, because of my love for you, go make that right. And maybe we've been holding on to it. And we're going to have a moment here in a few moments. But first, where we can, where we, I'm going to give us an opportunity to prayerfully to acknowledge this before the Lord. But I want you to notice the last section in this verse. Last verse in this section. There's a warning here in verse 26 that we are to take action before it's too late. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Yet even still, God in his mercy gives us more opportunities, even if we've missed one or two or three or four or five or six or more. 
But there will come a day when opportunities will run out. Life is short, and yet the few moments that we have here on earth impact eternity. Perhaps one of the reasons you are here this morning and today and for this next season is for the Holy Spirit to remind you that you have an unresolved anger or contempt in your heart towards somebody else. And today is the day to bring it before God and to begin pursuing reconciliation. So again, here are the two key questions. What are you angry about? Or who are you angry with? Where or when have you experienced anger recently? And I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we prepare to worship again. And hopefully maybe with a fresh heart that's cleared and healed of anger or contempt. And I want you to right now, just in prayer, if it helps you to close your eyes, do so. If you want to stand, if you want to kneel, bring this question before the Lord. Even say, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me where there is unresolved anger in my heart? Would you reveal to me where there might actually be contempt in my heart towards a brother or sister or any other person or group? I'm just going to give you a few moments. Just just take a minute. And if the Holy Spirit, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will, brings up that place of anger, would you just confess that? Just say, Lord, I confess, I admit that I am angry about or with whoever that might be. I even want to leave space. Maybe some of you think this is blasphemous or sacrilegious. Maybe some of you might be angry at God, and you're just afraid to say it, but God knows it. And I want to tell you that I had one of the most powerful encounters when I was a college student when I expressed my anger for the first time towards God. He can handle your anger, and he can reveal what's underneath that anger. Anger is a secondary emotion. There's something that prompted it. There might be some sense of injustice, some sense of unfairness, some sense of hurt, sometimes a, a perception that God maybe let you down. So I want to encourage you, if you maybe some of you need to confess your anger towards God this morning, let's bring that before him. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess that I have anger in my heart about or with it might be a situation, it might be a person. Just another moment. And secondly, it's not enough just to confess the anger. We need to process it. We need to go deeper. How are you processing that anger? With God and with others. You see, going to God with your anger is where it starts. So often we can turn inward with our anger or contempt. So often we go outward with it. But rarely we do go vertical. We go upward with it first. So as we've done that, how are you processing that with God and others? Talk about that. Express it. Because here's the thing, unprocessed anger doesn't go away. It just gets buried alive. 
And unless we work it out in God's presence, in the context of Christ-centered community, it'll begin to leak out and eventually it'll break out in unhealthy ways and destructive ways. How are you processing that anger? So remember, not all anger is sin. Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. That's what we're doing right now. We're not in bed. We're not in our beds. We're in seats. We're in this place. But we're pondering. What we're doing is we're seeking to get beneath the surface to discover and process what's causing our anger. And unless we do that, we stand on dangerous ground because as Ephesians 4.29 says, Paul echoes this, echoes this truth, yet he adds the key warning when he writes in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice the immediacy there. Don't let it go. Don't go to sleep tonight without dealing with this. And give, why? Give no opportunity to the devil. Beloved, that word opportunity in the original is, is tapas. It's, it's a place or location. In other words, if we have unresolved anger in our heart, we actually give space in our life for the enemy to step in and to deceive us and to hold us in bondage. Some of us need to be delivered from a demonic stronghold of anger this morning. Unprocessed anger will lead to sin and invites the devil to deceive us and to hold us in bondage. So we're clearing our hearts right now and saying there's no place for the devil to steal, kill, and destroy. And let the abundant life of Christ start to take up residence in places in your heart where anger once occupied as we begin to release this to the Lord. Process it with him. don't have time to go into this, but I went through a season this last year of processing anger at a whole different level that I didn't know was within me. And it started to bubble up and to leak out towards my kids, towards my wife. And I'm like, okay, what's, what's going on? I actually had to go into Christian counseling for about six months to kind of get beneath the surface of this. This isn't just going to happen. This might be, the, today's just the start. But one of the things that I was angry about that I didn't realize is that for all of my life, I grew up with a dad who was, out, who was an alcoholic. And I can't tell you, and I don't want to rehearse all the difficulties of that, but when the pandemic hit a year ago, my dad drunk himself into the hospital, went into detox. I couldn't see him. could hardly talk to him. He was completely incoherent. I just didn't know what was going on. I was so upset. I was so frustrated. But I was also afraid. If I didn't deal with my anger, here's the thing. If we don't deal with our anger towards those who have hurt us, we'll actually begin to become like those who have hurt us. And I can tell you, my dad's now 11 months sober. We have a reconciled relationship. And I've been able to talk with him at a whole different level that I have never for the previous 30, when did I start talking? 34 years ago. <laughs> when I was probably two years old. I could talk coherently. And so... God wants to do something in your heart this morning. And I want to invite us, as we sing this next song, to continue this in prayer. I want to pray right now, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, continue to reveal, continue to convict, continue to clean and cleanse our heart from any anger. From any anger, God. Thank you that you are God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. And Lord, would you transform our anger so we actually 
move and step towards the journey towards reconciliation. Redeem our anger so that we feel what you feel, that we're angry about what you're angry about, but how at the same time we're driven and marked by love as your kingdom people. So Jesus, may your righteousness that you have given to us, your very righteousness be worked out in our midst. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.